Well, Happy New Year. We want to be a church that is centered on God's Word. And so uh, typically what we do here is we just uh, walk through books of the Bible. And for the next 13 weeks, we're going to walk through the book of Exodus. And we've entitled this series Exodus. It's pretty clever. Um, But the tagline is important. The tagline is, he draws us out to draw us in. And we're going to see why we chose that tagline as we go throughout this book. But Exodus is basically divided into two big sections. Chapters 1 through 15 are about how God draws the people out of slavery in Egypt. And chapters 16 through 40 are about how God draws them in to worship with him. The first part is about Pharaoh making them build pyramids, and it ends by God inviting them to build a tabernacle. It starts in captivity, it ends with liberation and worship. God drew his people out to draw them into himself. And what we're going to see as we study this, even today, is that the Exodus story is also our story if we belong to Jesus. That this is a pattern for how God works with his people throughout all time and all places. So for the next 13 weeks, we're going to gather around the book of Exodus here on Sundays. But I also hope that you'll retreat with us around the book of Exodus. Um, In the lobby, you can pick up this uh, weekly reading plan. And the goal of this plan is just that you would read the upcoming passage of scripture that's gonna be preached in the week leading up to that. So um, you can pick this up. It's just a little tool for you to use to prepare for what we'll talk about here. But why is it true that the book of Exodus is ultimately about our story today? This took place thousands of years ago. There are things in here that we'll get to that seem really strange and hard to believe. Why would this be relevant for us today? And the answer is because ultimately this story points to a story that we are a part of here. And that is the story of Jesus and what God is doing in the world through him. Um, It's interesting, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus goes up onto this mountain with a couple of his friends, and while he's up there, he's transfigured. We studied this uh, last February. And he's transfigured, that is, he begins to look different. And then Moses, who we're introduced to next week, Moses and Elijah show up and are talking to Jesus, and they want to ask Jesus about some stuff, and here's what they were talking about. Luke chapter 9, verse 30. Suddenly, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. 
And the word departure there is literally the word exodus. They were talking with Jesus about his exodus that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. It's as if Jesus had come to do what God did in Exodus, but in a new way. Exodus is like a pattern. Jesus also taught his disciples this. After he was crucified, he was raised from the dead. And here's what he said in Luke chapter 24, verse 44. He told them, these are my words that I spoke with you while I was still with you. That everything written about who? Me. Everything written about me in the law of Moses, referring to the first five books of the Bible, Exodus included. Everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. Jesus says, this book of Exodus is actually about me. That doesn't mean that Every single detail in the story is actually the answer is Jesus, we're in church. It means that this book is ultimately pointing towards what Jesus is going to accomplish. The book of Exodus is really designed for us to help us see the Exodus that Jesus accomplishes. Let me show you one more thing in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, referring to the Old Testament, which would include the book of Exodus. And here's what he says about this book. Which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Something about reading the book of Exodus should give us wisdom that can lead us to faith in Christ Jesus. This should give us some information that should make it more possible for us to trust in Jesus for salvation. And then he goes on to say the most you know, famous of this little chunk of, of scripture. He says, all scripture, referring to the book of Exodus as well, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Why is the book of Exodus useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training? Why is that true of the Old Testament? Not because it gives us some moral principles that we can live by, and if everybody would start applying those principles, then the world would change. The reason that it's useful and profitable for teaching and correcting and training in righteousness, the reason is because it can give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's about Jesus. And that's what we're going to see. And it's not that the New Testament just teaches us to read the Old Testament that way, and then we read the Old Testament and we look for Jesus all the time. It's that it was originally written looking beyond the events that it recorded and pointing towards Jesus who would come. It's always been about Jesus. So 
as we read this story together for the next 13 weeks, as we study it, our goal is that we would come to know who God is and that we would trust him, that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see God in the person of Jesus. That's our goal. So let's jump in. Exodus chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can use the pew Bible. That's what we called them growing up. I guess we don't have pews here, but um, you can use the the Bible that's in front of the seat um, there. And it's on page 47 in that Bible. Uh, We're starting something new in this series. And if I was uh, better at thinking about things ahead of time, um, I would have given you a heads up about this last year. Uh, But starting in this uh, series, uh, we're not going to put the verses on the screen for you that are related to Exodus. Um, Instead, I want us to open our Bibles and actually look at it for ourselves, okay? And as long as the verses are on the screen, nobody's going to do that, all right? Um, And so um, we will put the supporting references on the screen, so like we've already done that, uh, but the actual verses that we're looking at in Exodus will not be on the screen, Make sense? So, um, if that makes you mad, I'm really sorry. Um, but uh, you can use the Bible in front of you right there. Let's jump in. It's interesting how the conflict for this entire story is introduced in verse 8. Verse 8 says, A new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. That's the beginning of the conflict. There was a new king in Egypt, and he didn't know about Joseph. And what's interesting is that gives us a clue that in order to understand this book, maybe you need to know about Joseph, and maybe I need to know about Joseph. See, the book of Exodus is actually the second episode in a five-episode series called the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch just means the book of five. And so when this was written, it was originally part of a larger book. Genesis is episode one, Exodus is episode two. So in order to understand episode two, you need to know something about episode one. And so verses one through seven in Exodus one are kind of like the crawling text in Star Wars. They're catching you up to the backstory so that you can understand the conflict that you're walking into. The conflict here is that there's a new king. He doesn't know Joseph. Who's Joseph? That's the goal of this first little section is to remind the reader about episode one. And so notice some of the ways that these first few verses point backwards to Genesis. In verse one, this is an odd way to start a book, by the way. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each came with his family. That's just out of nowhere. That doesn't make sense to start that way unless you're episode two. And people already know something about Israel and Jacob and his family. Notice that verses two through four are just a list of names. 
Why in the world is the Bible so concerned about remembering people's names like that? And then notice that in verse five, it tells us that there were these people who came to Egypt, but then it tells us, but Joseph was already in Egypt. How did Joseph get there? The first section of Exodus, the goal is to help you see that in order to understand Exodus, you need to know about Genesis. So let's talk about it real quick. This story starts with a man named Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, these three verses are a foundation to understanding the rest of the Bible. So Genesis 12, 1 through 3, these are some verses you should memorize. Maybe you don't have to memorize the actual verses if you don't want, but just remember Genesis 12, that's pretty foundational for understanding the Bible. That'll serve you well, all right? Look at what happens in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, whose name was eventually changed to Abraham, go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So notice that God is is coming to this man named Abraham, and he's saying, you're going to leave your land and go to a new land, okay? And then here's what he says, verse two. I will make you into a great nation. In other words, you're gonna have so many kids, you're gonna have such a long line of family that it's actually gonna grow into a nation. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Verse three, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And notice this, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God promises Abraham that he will be blessed personally. That is, he's gonna be rich and famous. God promises Abraham that his family will be blessed. That is, they're gonna grow into this nation. And God promises Abraham that the whole world, all the peoples, all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham and through his family, his nation that's going to come from him. That's the promise. And then... A little bit later in Abraham's story, God tells him this, Genesis 15, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, know this for certain, your offspring, that is this family that's gonna grow into a nation, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve and afterward they will go out with many possessions. God tells Abraham, you're gonna be blessed. Your family's gonna be blessed. They're gonna grow. The whole world is gonna be blessed through you, but it's not gonna come without suffering. A day is coming when your family is going to find themselves away from this land I'm gonna give you. They're gonna be enslaved and oppressed there. But I will draw them out, he says. Abraham has to wait 
years, even for one son to be born. But eventually that son is born. His name is Isaac. Isaac also has a son. His name was Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel, which is where the nation of Israel gets their name from. And Jacob had 12 sons. 11 of them are mentioned in verses 2 through 4 in Exodus chapter 1. This little section in verses 2 through 4 is actually just a quote from Genesis 46. The 12th son that's not mentioned in verses 2 through 4, not 12th in birth order, but 12th in Exodus 1, is Joseph. Joseph was the best of the sons, really. He was his dad's favorite. And he's really one of the only redeemable characters, one of the only admirable characters in the book of Genesis. I mean, literally, he's basically the only one who kind of does the right thing, and you can count on him. And Joseph, he was hated by his brothers because he was his dad's favorite and also because he had these dreams about how someday he would rise to prominence and all his brothers would serve him. And people hate that kind of stuff. And so people hated Joseph. So he was, his brothers hated him. And so what they did is, long story short, they sold him into slavery. And he wound up in Egypt. They lied to their dad about it and said that he had been killed by an animal. And for all they knew, he would die in Egypt, a nobody. Joseph in Egypt, though, faced intense suffering, but he continued to trust God, even in the face of all kinds of terrible circumstances. And then eventually, through a long series of events, he was exalted to Pharaoh's right hand. And he, ordered, he organized this whole food distribution process that would save literally the whole ancient world from a famine. And it would eventually save his own brothers who hated him and sold him into slavery from famine as well. And through those events, all of his brothers and his dad and their descendants come to live in Egypt. That's the story of Joseph. And here's how Joseph's story ends. This is the last, the last verses of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 50, verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will certainly come to you, come to your aid and bring you up from this land, the land of Egypt, to the land he swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Joseph made the sons of Israel take an oath. When God comes to your aid, you are to carry my bones up from here. Verse 26, Joseph died at the age of 110. They embalmed him and placed him in a coffin in Egypt. That's the end of the book of Genesis. Then the book of Exodus starts. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Then it tells you the names. Then it tells you that Joseph was already in Egypt. 
You know the story now. And then verse six and seven catch you up on what's been going on since Joseph died. Verse six says, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died. So not only did Joseph die, but they all died. But verse seven, but the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. So what starts with just a family in verse one has become a nation by verse seven, just like God promised would happen. God promised Abraham his family would be a nation. It's a nation now. God promised Abraham that they would be in the land, but they're not in the land now. They're in Egypt. Joseph and that whole generation died, but Joseph died believing that God would come and keep his promise. Joseph says, God will come to your aid. But when he died, there wasn't aid that they needed. They didn't need aid. They didn't need help. Everything was going well. He was second in command of Egypt. The Pharaoh loved Joseph and the Pharaoh, the king, loved Joseph's family. Why would Joseph say when he died, God's gonna come to your aid and take you to the land? Because he died believing God's promise. And God promised that someday you'll end up in the land, but you are going to be oppressed for 400 years. Joseph died believing that promise. Now in verse seven, it's letting us know God is keeping his promise. The trouble starts in verse eight. When a new king comes who doesn't know about Joseph. And not only does he not know about Joseph, but he must not know about God and God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob either. He doesn't know about any of that stuff. And so here's what he begins to do. Two things. First, he enslaves the Israelite people. Look at verse nine. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. It's like they're a nation. Verse 10, come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise they will multiply further. And when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They hated them. Verse 13, they worked the Israelites ruthlessly verse 14, and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and in all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. So because the king doesn't know Joseph, he doesn't know how Joseph was actually loved by the Egyptians and Joseph actually saved the whole world and Joseph's family was actually a blessing to be around. Instead, he's threatened by this family that has now become a nation. And so what does he do? He enslaves them. And it's hard to read the description of this 
enslavement without thinking about the horrific history of slavery in the United States. We aren't very far removed from this same kind of oppression in our own nation. Not only in the form of slavery, but also in the form of Jim Crow laws. And that should grieve us. It should grieve us and anger us that in a so-called Christian nation, slavery was not only accepted, but defended, even by Christians. It is one of the true miracles of God that so many African Americans came to cling to the hope of the gospel, in part by resonating with this story. A black pastor friend of mine named Larry Sykes who is just a brilliant young pastor in Kentucky. I was at lunch with him um, one time, and I just asked him, ignorantly, how did so many slaves come to follow the God of their oppressors? And he said, brother, I don't believe they were following the same God. What we come to see in Exodus is that God is a defender of the weak. He will bring oppressors to justice. And he was not reactive to this oppression. He told Abraham that he would do that. So first, Pharaoh enslaves the Israelites. Second, He murders the Israelites' sons. Look at verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, the first whose name was Shepherah and the second whose name was Puah, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. Verse 20, so God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very numerous. Since the midwives feared God, he gave them families. But, verse 22, Pharaoh then commanded all his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. Pharaoh thinks that he can control life and death. And so he's just going to kill the boys. Eventually, if they only have daughters, they'll have to marry Egyptian men and the the whole Israelite nation will just become part of Egyptian culture. But there are these two midwives who resist. And the reason is it says they feared God, presumably more than they feared Pharaoh. More than they were afraid what Pharaoh could do to them, they feared what God could do to them. So they did what God would want them to do, even though Pharaoh was telling them to do something different. 
We can debate the ethics of if it's okay for them to lie. I actually don't know how much of a lie it is because it says that the first midwife was named this and the second was named this. If there's only two midwives and you got this whole nation, they probably aren't getting there in time. I don't know. But if they lied, we could talk about the ethics of it. All we know is God rewards them. God blesses them. They chose the lesser of two evils. We could lie or we could kill the sons. They chose to lie if they lied. And God honors them for that. But Pharaoh says, okay, well, if the midwives aren't gonna do it, then my people will. And he commands them to just start going around and taking boys and throwing them in the river, the Nile. The Nile was actually the source of life for the region. It's one of the reasons that Egypt was able to grow into such a great empire is because they had such a fertile ground with the Nile. But what is supposed to be a source of life, Pharaoh is going to try and use as a source of death. And that is where we'll pick up the story next week. But in chapter one, the story begins in kind of a surprising way. See, this book is known for some of the most miraculous events in the Bible. Like one of the challenges of this book and teaching this book in today's culture is that modern people, it's like, do we believe all that stuff happened? Or let's look for a scientific explanation for how some of that stuff took place. Or like, we're gonna have to deal with some of that as we work through this book. But in chapter one, nothing supernatural going on. In fact, God is basically absent. So, okay, God, if you've got these great promises, why are your your people suffering so much? And why do the wicked seem to be prospering? And where are you? That's where the story of Exodus starts, asking those kinds of questions. And those are the kind of questions that you can relate to. The supernatural stuff that comes later, maybe that's going to be hard to grapple with, but but you've asked these kind of questions before, haven't you? To the Israelites in slavery, it felt like not only did Joseph not, not only did Pharaoh not know about Joseph, but maybe God didn't either. Does God remember any of that stuff? Has God forgotten us? And this is where we find ourselves many times. Maybe there's something because of relationships in your life, a son or a daughter. Maybe there's something financially. Maybe there's a health crisis. Maybe there's a political crisis. Certainly, there are people all over the world It's experiencing oppression more similar to this than we are today. 
And we should be mindful of that as well. But even in our own lives, we know what it's like to wonder, God, what are you doing, man? Do you even know about Joseph? Do you even know about your promises? Exodus 1 helps us answer the question, what can we expect from God when we need rescue? Do you find yourself needing rescue from something? What can we expect from God when we need rescue? The design of Exodus 1, I think, is intended to help us see that God's faithfulness in the past can give you assurance of God's faithfulness to you. God's faithfulness in the past can give you assurance of God's faithfulness to you. Abraham was given promises and suffered before receiving them. Joseph was given these visions and dreams and suffered before realizing them. Joseph died looking forward to the day when God would finally keep his promise. And Israel, now here you are with a promise. The promise is that eventually God will bring justice. He will lead you out of this land and take you to a new land. And and so the question before you, Israel, is will you trust him? God doesn't become an active part of this story until chapter two. But I want to read you just the last two verses of chapter two. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the Israelites and God knew. God knew what? It's interesting that it's the same word that's used in verse 8, when it says that the king did not know. When the king didn't know, God knew. When the world forgets you, God remembers you. When the world forsakes you, God stays with you. When the king did not know Joseph, God knew. When God's people need rescue, they can look to God's faithfulness in the past to give them assurance of God's faithfulness to them. God has always drawn us out to draw us in. God has always drawn us out to draw us in. This is what he did for Abraham. How did God begin his blessings on Abraham? He said, go out from your land to a new land. When he shows up to reaffirm his promises to Abraham, here's how he introduces himself. Genesis 15 verse 7. 
he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. You see how God is introducing himself as the one who draws, draws you out? He says, Abraham, remember, I'm the one who, who brought you out of that land to bring you into a new land. Before God gives the people the law in Exodus chapter 20, here's what he's going to say to them. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land, the place of slavery. Michael Morales, an Old Testament scholar says, to his people, Yahweh is and can only be known as the God of the Exodus. This is all God ever does for his people is draw them out to draw them in. Everyone who's ever really known God knows him as a God of deliverance, a God who draws them out of the place they are and draws them into himself. And if that's what he did for Abraham, and if that's what he did for Israel, why can you trust that he will do it for you? Exodus 1 begins by referencing Genesis because remembering God's faithfulness in the past can give you assurance of God's faithfulness in the present. But isn't it interesting that the Bible constantly has these little lists of names and genealogies? And the New Testament actually starts like that as well. The genealogies in the Old Testament connect the current generation to the previous generation the genealogies in the New Testament connect the previous generations to Jesus. And then they end. Here's why I think that's significant. Because ultimately, all of these names, and all of these stories are documented and are designed to point towards Jesus. He's the end of the genealogies because he's the goal of the story. And here's why that is so significant. And here's why that means you can trust God to be faithful to you today. Because your hope is not just that what God did for Abraham, he'll do for you, and what God did for Israel, he'll do for you. Your hope and my hope is that what God did for Jesus, he will do for me. Jesus also knows what it's like to suffer injustice. He went to a cross he died. He was raised from the dead 
and power and glory. And he says, follow me. Jesus leads us on a new exodus. To Abraham, God said, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur to this land. To the Israelites, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to bring you to this land. To us, Colossians 1.13. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. He draws us out to draw us in. So this year, this week, no matter what comes your way, Fix your eyes on Jesus. What God has done for him, the way that God was faithful to him, he will be faithful to you. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for keeping your promises. God, there's so much we don't understand about how you work. But God, we praise you for being a God who is compassionate and slow to anger, abounding in faithfulness and steadfast love. God, I want to pray for those in the room today who are on the brink of quitting. God, I don't know all the reasons they may be overcome and overwhelmed. But God, I know that you know. So God, would you draw them out of the despair that they may find themselves in? Would you draw them in? God, I ask that you would be honored in how we live in response to your word. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and sing with us?